You may be seated, and as you're being seated, I invite you to find a Bible, if you will, and turn to the first book of the Bible, the, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. We're continuing in a sermon series that we have entitled First Things. We could have just as simply referred to it as Bible 101. We're looking at some of the foundational documents of the Holy Scripture. We're looking at some of the foundational thought upon which all Scripture revelation is based. Last week, we saw in Genesis chapter 3 the fall of our original parents, Adam and Eve, into a state of rebellion, into a state of disobedience. And as a result of the fall, we share the congenital disease as human beings with our original parents. We are prone to wander, we are broken, we are bent, and we are by nature, by nature, in a state of rebellion. Surrendering to Christ is when we lay down our armaments of rebellion, and we decide that we will let God be God, and we'll let Jesus Christ rule and reign in our lives as Lord. Last week, we saw our original parents fall into that state of rebellion. Today, we're going to look at what happens after they fell into that state of rebellion. We're going to see how Adam and Eve respond, and then we'll also see how God responds. So our text begins in Genesis chapter 3, I'll begin reading at verse 8. They, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I particularly want you to pay close attention to verse 15. God is speaking still to the serpent, and God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. My friends, this is the Word of God. Would you pray with me? God, you have told us that, that your Word is is the sword of the Spirit. So we humbly ask at this time that your Word will do its penetrating, piercing work in each one of our lives. 
May your word challenge us. May your word comfort us. May your word transform us. May we never be afraid, O God, of what what you will do with our lives when we place our lives in your hands. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll speak to each one of us. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds that are focused. You have an individual word for each one of us, and we want to hear what you have to say to us this day. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The Bible is very, very realistic. I, th- I like to think that I'm a realist in a lot of ways, and the Bible helps me to be a realist in a lot of ways. We need to face facts about the human condition. And these early chapters of Genesis paint a picture for us as to what we in the Christian community believe about human nature. And if we don't get what we believe about human nature to be right, we'll never understand or comprehend all that God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ. We have to face facts about human nature. Last week, we watched the original parents rebel. They chose their way over God's way. They wanted to do what they thought would bring them pleasure in life, And they chose to do what God had told them not to do. They fell into rebellion. They fell into disobedience. Right there in the Garden of Eden, in paradise itself, they were living in an amazing intimacy with God. But still yet they chose rebellion. They chose disobedience. They chose to seek to be their own gods and lord of their lives and captains of their own destiny. The serpent came. The serpent came and enticed them to do the very thing that God told them not to do, and their hearts led them into that rebellion. And we see in the text in Genesis 3 that they did have a guilty conscience after they rebelled. A guilty conscience can be a wonderful gift, is a wonderful gift from God to us. Now, I know in the last 150 years or so, thanks to people like Thomas Dewey and Sigmund Freud, people in this culture tend to think that guilt is always bad. Sometimes, if not most of the time, guilt is pathological. So we just need to never deal with guilt, never embrace or accept guilt, but the Christian faith says differently. We should not be paralyzed by guilt. It should not be pathological in our lives. It should not destroy what God is trying to do in our lives, but at the same time, a guilty conscience can be a great gift given to us from God. A guilty conscience can help us become the people that God wants us to become. Sometimes we have a guilty conscience conscience because we are guilty. And sometimes we need to acknowledge our guilt so that we can use the grace that's provided for us in Jesus Christ, that empowering presence of God in our lives, to help us do differently, to help us do better. 
So a guilty conscience can be the voice of the Holy Spirit in us, helping us to do things differently. Evidently, Adam and Eve had a guilty conscience, and they decided to go into hiding there in the Garden of Eden. Hopefully, our guilt will send us fleeing to Jesus Christ for mercy, forgiveness, cleansing, redemption. But here we see that their guilt caused them to go into hiding. They took their brokenness, they took their shame, they took their guilt, and they tried to hide from God. Here in this text, I want you to notice the course of action that Adam and Eve choose. But I also want you to notice the course of action that God chooses in this text. So the text begins, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze or then the cool of the evening, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We can't hide. We think we can hide. It brings us comfort sometimes to isolate and leave the fellowship of the Christian community and to try to even leave the fellowship that God is calling us to, but we ultimately cannot hide from God. Ultimately, we don't want to hide from God. Adam and Eve are here in hiding. They've taken their rebellious heart, their disobedience. They've taken, they've taken their sin and their shame, and they're trying to hide. And here comes God in the cool of the evening to that very special time of intimacy that our original parents had with the living God, and they are in hiding. Notice God comes. That's grace. Notice God comes seeking. That is grace. Notice that the Lord God came into the garden and he said, where are you? Now, obviously, God is not asking for information out of ignorance. He knows where Adam is. Sometimes God, through that guilty conscience, can ask us the, the questions that we need to hear. When Jesus, or when God here says, where are you? He's actually saying, Adam, why are you hiding? And that's the question he needs to hear. And you notice Adam comes out, sneaks out from hiding, and he responds, verse 10, Adam said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. See now, fear has entered their lives. I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I, I was afraid because I was naked. There's shame and I hid myself. God then said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Good questions again. And again, God is not asking those questions out of a need for information, out of some ignorance. He is asking those questions not for God's own sake, but he's asking those questions for the sake, and, for the sake of Adam and Eve. Some, sometimes one of the greatest gifts that God can give us is to cause us to really examine our lives, examine our behaviors, to perhaps even begin to see ourselves as others see us. 
There's an old ancient practice in the Christian community. It's called the, the examination of conscience. It's something that Christians have done for a couple thousand years, whereas we are retiring for the evening, as we're saying our final prayers of the evening, we ask ourselves questions, serious questions, hard questions, questions that cause us to examine our lives, questions that will cause us to look at the day we just lived and see how we can do differently tomorrow. It was Socrates who famously said, an unexamined life isn't worth living. Sometimes we choose to live in a clueless, oblivious state to what's going on around us, to even what's going on within our very hearts. But God will push and God will prod. God's, one of God's intolerable compliments to us is if you belong to him, he will not leave you alone. He will push. He will prod. That guilty conscience will show up. You will hear questions coming into your spirit that will help you examine your own life. Here's God asking questions of our original parents. And it is absolutely amazing to listen to the answers that Adam and Eve gave to God. We learn so much about human nature in this text. Look at the answers that Adam and Eve gave to God. God said, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Adam said, the, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, it's, it's her fault. But actually, it's your fault, God, because you gave her to me. Notice how he's sharing the blame. He's actually more than sharing the blame. He's giving the blame away. Then the Lord God just turns to the woman and says, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. We learn a lot about human nature right now. Here's Adam saying, God, it's your fault because you gave me that woman who gave me the fruit. And here's Eve saying, it's all the serpent's fault. And after all, God, you put the serpent in the garden, so it's really your fault too that the serpent came my way. There is a remarkable ability among all human beings to blame others and to rationalize. We can about rationalize any of our own behavior. And, and it is amazing because it's really a very foolish thing to do. One of the greatest gifts that God has given to any of us, and it's a gift he, he really has given to the whole human family, is our ability to respond. We call that responsibility. We have the ability to respond. We really can respond to the world around us. We really make the choice as to how we respond to the world around us. We make the choice as to how we respond to other people. We cannot control them. You might as well give up trying to control the world around you and everybody in it. There's a lot about world we can't control, but we can control our responses. God has given us responsibility. So it's our choice whether we shirk responsibility, whether we blame others, whether we pass the buck. This text shows us in a dramatic way as human beings, we are a buck-passing people. That's what we do. 
And to grow in Christ, to grow as human beings, we have to accept responsibility for ourselves. We are so creative when it comes to passing the responsibility to someone else. I had a member in my second church, and you probably know people like this. I had a member in my second church. She had a temper. She had a temper, and she was always blaming everybody else for her outburst. She was always blaming everybody else for her temper. And the way she used to say it was, they pushed my button. You know, after about two years of listening to that, I finally said to this person, you're in charge of your button. Whether you know it or not, you can make the decision to protect your button. Uh, she never believed me, and by the time she was about 58 years old, she just imploded her anger. She ceased being a grumbler and just became a grumble, and life sort of passed away from her. Sad, sad. But we can spend our life blaming others. Some of you are taking a journey with me this summer on Monday mornings. We're studying C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. It's not about what you think it's about if you don't know the book. It's about the divorce between heaven and hell. He's answering a poet, William Blake, who said that one day heaven and hell will just come together and everything will work out okay for everybody regardless of what choices you made make in life. Well, of course, C.S. Lewis didn't agree with that. He says, there is a great divorce between heaven and hell. They will never join. Uh, evil will never become good, and good will not become evil. They're two separate realities. To quote Jesus, they're separated by great abyss. Anyway, in the book, The Great Divorce, it's a fantasy. It's a dream that the person is experiencing uh, that does change the person's life, rather like Scrooge and the Christmas Carol. The person who's dreaming this dream, the great divorce, I know it changes his life as he takes this fantastical dream journey through the gray town and to the outskirts of heaven. The gray town is where you don't want to spend eternity, but the shame is people that are there are there because they do want to be there. That's the place they've made for themselves. That's the way they've chosen to live lives. They have spent their lives making, them a hellish, making themselves a hellish creature. So God gives them what they want in the end. And there's one episode in The Great Divorce where two, two chaps travel a great distance. And see, you have to travel a great distance because in the great town that's full of grumbling, angry, mad, bitter people, they're always moving further and further and further and further away from each other. But there are two chaps in Greytown, and they want to see somebody famous in Greytown. And again, don't forget what Greytown is. They're trying to see somebody famous in Greytown, so they choose to go and find Napoleon. Napoleon. Now, if you're English, like C.S. Lewis, you really don't like Napoleon. They want to go find Napoleon. Now, they have to travel like 15,000 years to get there, but they, they do it. They got all the time and eternity. They're traveling. They finally find the house in which Napoleon is living, and they, they go up and they peek through the window. And let me, let me read to you what they see when they see Napoleon there spending eternity in the gray town. The text says, walking up and down, up and down, all the time, left, right, left, right, never stopping. That's Napoleon. The two chaps watched him for about a year, and he never stopped, he never rested. And Napoleon, muttering to himself all the time, was saying things like, 
It was General Sult's fault. It was General Ney's fault. It was my wife Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. Like that all the time, he never stopped for a moment. He didn't even seem able to stop for a moment. That was great town for eternity for Napoleon. That was the person he had turned himself into, and God allows, allowed him to have that for eternity. We have an amazing ability to pass the buck, to blame other people, to not take responsibility for the life that God in Jesus Christ is calling us. Our, our original parents taught us how to do it. It's right here in the text. This is the course of action that Adam and Eve chose. But now, I want you to look at the course of action that God chooses. Beginning at verse 14, God curses the serpent. God curses the serpent. I know some people in this culture, they only want a God that is loving and gracious and kind. But to be balanced, to have the biblical view of God, you've got to have a God that is loving and gracious and kind and a God that's also a God of wrath and judgment. You know, when we love somebody, we can find a mean streak in us. If somebody or something is hurting the person that we love, God has that mean streak in him. So to have a balanced view of God, you've got to also see a God of wrath and judgment and love and grace. Here we see, here we hear God cursing the serpent. Hear what he said. Because you have done this, he's saying to the serpent, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Right here is where the serpent becomes the snake that we know. Now, the serpent in the Garden of Eden, of course, we talked about this last week. Uh, the, book, the New Testament tells us it's Satan, it's the devil, the one that Jesus calls the, print, the prince of this world or the one that Paul calls the God of this age. That's who the serpent is. Here, the serpent that was in the garden becomes a snake. And I've always said, by the way, I remember a sermon quite a ways back where I did make a confession to when it comes to snakes. I know all of you are not this way, but when it comes to snakes, I have a Genesis 3 fear of snakes. I don't like snakes. It about, it about keep me from cutting grass. I'm so afraid of snakes. What I want you to look at here, though, is verse 15. This is the course of action that God has chosen. The original parents, they have fallen into rebellion. They have fallen into hiding. They have fallen into disobedience. But look at what God chooses. He's still speaking to the serpent, and he says, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Here God is beginning to talk about millennia of spiritual warfare, millennia of conflict between good and evil. But then God says, he, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In the Christian faith, we call this verse the Proto-Evangelium. This is the first prophecy of Jesus. This is the first prediction of the cross. This is where our redemption begins. We're not even out of the garden, out of the presence of the serpent yet, and God is already at work to redeem us, 
to call us, to claim us, to bring us back, to bring us back home. Hopefully you got the picture. He will strike your head. You will strike his heel. To strike the head of a living creature is deadly. To strike the heel of a living creature is painful, but not deadly. So we see what we think to be the picture of the cross there. On the cross, the enemy, Satan, crushed the heel of Jesus. The enemy thought he had won there on Calvary that day. But the one on the cross would crush the head of the serpent. So here's this quickly in the story, redemption begins. You see the course of action that Adam and Eve chose, and we're related. We choose that same course of action a lot. It runs in our blood. But you see the course of action that God chose. He has made a way for us to come home. He's made a way for us to come out of hiding. He's made a way for for us to come back into intimacy with God. Sin alienates us from God and from each other, but through the work of Jesus Christ, we can come back into intimacy and we can know him as Father, Abba, Daddy, Papa. We can know him, not just know about him, but we can re-enter a life of intimacy with him and know him. Jesus Christ has done for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. We can't undo what human nature has done ourselves. But God in Christ does. Last week I introduced some of you. Some of you you knew it well. I I, I introduced some of you to the second greatest Methodist anthem. And can it be that I should gain? The first one's... Oh, for a thousand tongues. We've always started our hymnal with that hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues. But the second greatest Methodist anthem is, And Can It Be That I Should Gain? And Can It Be That I Should Gain came out of Charles Wesley's experience with the Holy Spirit. It happened on Pentecost in 1738, just a few days before John's Aldersgate experience. It's interesting how separately God got a hold of both of those Wesley brothers and Jesus stepped off the pages of history and became a living presence in their life. So when we sing, and can it be that I should gain, that great anthem of the Methodist movement, what you're hearing is Charles Wesley's testimony. I hope it's your testimony this morning that in Christ you're finding freedom, the chains are falling off, you're overcoming the dominion of of sin and the devil, that in Christ you find the freedom to become the person that God, God, God wants you to be. In a few moments after we respond to the word with the creed, we're going to respond to the word with singing, and can it be that I should gain? My prayer for each one of you is by the time we sing it in a few moments, it will be, it will be your testimony. Amen.